Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national, and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on um, the good old public holiday, which probably means we'll have less listeners um, this morning. Yeah, hello to our one listener out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, mainly because I think, um, you know, when people listen to the um, to the radio, they generally are listening to it on their way to work. Mm, or school um, or whatever. So. School, whatever. So we'll yeah. probably have, I think I can guarantee we probably have less listeners today than we would usually have um, but I hope the hey small I don't even want to be here I'd rather uh, be in bed <laughs> um, for the small amount of listeners that we do have um, that we've got a pretty good program um, I'm going to be we're going to be interviewing a school striker from Canberra um, named Oscar Brown later today we'll have a bit of a yeah. debrief on the massive global climate strike that happened over that? the last Friday um, and then we'll be playing a recording of a speech by Alex Bainbridge from Social Science from a re- seminar that happened earlier this month. Um, and then we'll be talking about the kind of latest developments that have been happening in West Papua and um, Britain, because um, there's actually just been a lot happening there. So much. Um, but I guess before um, we move on to that, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And even now, I always want to c- continue to plug this, um, but the fight... Um, for the sacred trees in Jabberon, um, is still ongoing. Mm. Um, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be just going back and forth with, um, you know, um, basically there's sometimes some workers uh, coming in to sort of start the construction works on the road and then sort of keeps going, it keeps going back and forth. But either way, people, uh, the community is demanding that any um, any people who can get down to the camp um, to get there de- um, immediately, they need all the help they can get. Um, it's just right in Ararat. Um, you can also go check out the Facebook page, Carpools to Camp, um, to organise potential car. But I imagine a lot of our listeners are possibly already part of that um, Facebook group anyway. But I just want to give another plug um, to visit the Jabron um, Embassy. Now, I guess the first thing... Um, I want to talk about is um, just a bit about um, West Papua. Now, we're, we're hoping to get a potential interview, but that um, hasn't happened. But those who have been following the news, um, 
West Papua has um, seen a kind of bloody escalation in violence and resurgent kind of political unrest. Um, it's gone as far to see, has seen pressure mount on Australia to push for some international intervention to the situation gripping one of its closest neighbours. And, of course, the death toll um, from the latest round of student riots has reportedly mounted to 32 people after a four, and this is in response to hundreds demonstrating and burning down a government offices and others buildings. So basically West Papuan students are basically revolting um, against the occupation of Indonesia. And some other things coming out of it is Indonesian authorities are accused of shooting dead high school and university students amid the chaos. And, of course, dozens more were injured in the outbreak in protests across Wamina and the West Papuan capital of Jarapua. And Indonesian authorities have rounded up more than 700 people for questioning in the past 48 hours. And exiled West Papuan independence leader Benny Wenda um, told SBS News the protest started peacefully and the bloodshed marks a serious deterioration of the situation. This is really shocking at a human level. Um, he told SBS these students are high school students in Wamina. They're kids, he said. And Mr. Mr. Wendanda spoke to SBS News from New York where he is attending the US UN General Assembly to lobby for the body's High Commissioner for Human Rights to be granted access to his homelands. My message to the global community is we really need the United Nations Peacekeeping Force to enter West Papua. We're talking about a humanitarian crisis happening there and the independence leader um, said Australia should support calls for international intervention to investigate the situation. Um, so there's, yeah, there's more, the, it's the, the violence is, I guess, still escalating and it's all in the context of the fact that, um, Indonesia continues to deny, um, West Papua any sense of self-determination, um, and the fact that it's continuously occupying, um, West Papua. And so, you know, there's, um, that's, um, that's, so the, the violence has gone and um, is still ongoing. Um, there has been a number of solidarity protests that have been organised in the past several weeks. I'm not sure if there's any happening now, but I urge listeners um, to keep following what is happening in West Papua um, and you know, to keep, keep up the solidarity work. And we've got a lot of um, active West Papuan activists here in uh, in Melbourne, which is great. Um, there's been some really good uh, protests and hopefully there's some more and we'll um, report on those as we find out about them. Um, I've got a couple of um, good news pieces, actually. So uh, earlier this week, uh, the New South Wales Parliament um, basically decriminalised uh, abortion. So there was a 119-year-old Crimes Act and abortion was uh, unfortunately under that, which... Um, I, I believe now New South Wales was the last state to decriminalise abortion. But a lot of people don't realise, uh, so reproductive uh, legislation is under state-based legislation and uh, probably it's only in the last five to ten years that we've really had any movement um, in a lot of states to actually decriminalise abortion. Um, so, you know, even if it wasn't uh, followed through with prosecution, uh, in a number of states uh, there was the possibility that someone who was providing an abortion um, would be, could be prosecuted.
prosecuted. Uh, someone seeking, a woman seeking a termination could also be prosecuted, um, which obviously is not something that is good for women's reproductive rights. We should have the choice uh, to terminate um, and plan when we have babies and if we have babies. And New South Wales was the last bastion of this and now it has been decriminalised. So that's some really good news. And I have to say it's only after the massively hard work of so many activists in New South Wales that that has actually been pushed through. There were a number of MPs who have really been trying to either water down or stop that um, that from going through. And there's another um, good news piece here in Melbourne. Um, so there was a win for hospitality workers in Melbourne. Uh, Barry, the cafe... Um, the, um, the cafe basically, I think, that really started Hospo Voice's rise to uh, recognition. So Hospo Voice is a, a union that represents the hospitality industry, and they've really been punching above their weight. They're quite a small union, but they really do a lot of uh, campaign work. Um, so the operators of the cafe, so Barry Cafe in Melbourne's inner north, they'll face a court after the Fair Work Ombudsman started legal action against the company, alleging that they underpaid 73 workers more than $180,000. Um, so the key point in that is that the Fair Work Ombudsman um, say that 73 employees were paid to underpaid a total of $180,000 over a 12-month period. The owners of the Northcote Cafe will face the federal court on October 16th and individual workers were allegedly underpaid between $31,000 and $12,315 each. Now, the, the hospitality industry is pretty much rife with people who get underpaid. So the hospitality workers are often underpaid, they're overworked, and they work in unsafe conditions and often very um, conditions that are, uh, you know, that have a lot of harassment, etc. So Hospo Voice is absolutely amazing. They're doing a lot of work, and this um, this prosecution for Barry Cafe is pretty much uh, single-handedly to do with Hospo Voice and their efforts. If you are listening and you are um, a hospitality worker, I do urge you to join Hospo Voice. They've been doing some absolutely fantastic uh, work. And the more people that join um, Hospo Voice, the stronger they will be and the more they can advocate for people in the hospitality industry. And if the Barry win is any... Um, indication, I think that they are well on their way to trying to change the culture of the hospitality industry, which is well overdue, and I'm really glad that they're doing it because I was a hospitality worker and it was an awful, awful industry to work in. <laughs> so I'm really glad I'm, I'm not working there anymore. Hmm. So what else have you got, Jacob? Um, the next thing is um, just a bit of an update on Jock Powell Freeman. Oh, yes. Um, so this is just an article in Green Left Weekly um, by Pip Hinman, um, but this is about um, the Australian's anti-fascist campaign and you know, Jock Powell Freeman. Um, he's just recently been paroled um, by the Bulgarian authorities, but this is currently being challenged by Bulgarian authorities, and his lawyer has said he urgently needs to leave the country. Powell Freeman, who has been, just give a bit of background for listeners who might know, um, he has been in prison since 2007, and he was unexpectedly granted parole on September the 19th after serving 11 years of a 20-year sentence on trumped-up murder charges. He was last denied um, parole on July 17th. And currently, right, what's happening right now is he is currently being detained in an immigration detention centre in the capital, Sofia. Um, Powell Freeman's lawyer, um, Kaling 
Angeliov told the ABC on September the 24th that Australia needed to act. Your authority needs to come here, take him with your, the car and put him on the plane. Fascist sympathisers have made no secret that they are out to prevent Powell Freeman from, from leaving prison. Rallies have been organised to demand his parole be reversed. Um, news of Powell, Powell Freeman's parole came as a surprise to everyone. His friend uh, Disilav Zoniva told Green Left Weekly after the court um, rejected Jock's parole in July, he and his lawyer appealed. They took it to the higher court, the appellate court. Um, and what kind of happened here, is, if, um, they state here that it was incredible luck that um, his case fell upon this particular panel of judges. The head judge um, is known to be an independent-minded person who opposes government pressure. The next day, Powell Freeman um, was taken from Sofia Prison to the bus month the um, Immigration Detention Centre to await his Australian papers, but five days later, Bulgaria, Bulgaria's Chief Prosecutor initiated proceedings to try and prevent him from leaving the country. No one seemed to know why Powell Freeman's um, departure from the detention centre was delayed. First, it was sought um, that he had not received his passport, but Zaneva confirmed on September 24th that he had been given it. In other words, Powell Freeman is being held illegally in Bulgaria. And Zaneva um, said Pal Freeman told her the Australian embassy f- officials could have put him on a plane as soon as he was given his passport. We believe that direct action should be taken at the highest government level. Zaneva said time is of paramount importance. Jock is effectively a free man before an eventual um, Supreme Court ruling, holding him at the detention centre is illegal. Um, and I guess just to give um, a bit on about Pal Freeman's um, case... Um, those, you know, who don't know anything about Powell Freeman's case know he has demonstrated exceptional courage and principle, first by taking the stand against racism, secondly, Powell Freeman helped organise fellow prisoners into a union to stand up to the systematic abuse and maltreatment at the hands of corrupt and brutal f- prison guards and authorities in win rights for prisoners. Take ac- And you can actually take action to ensure Powell Freeman's safe return home. I Really, we really recommend that you write to the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade at media at dfat.org.au or to the Office of the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne at senator.payne, P-A-Y-N-E, at aph.gov.au and ask when he will be brought back to Australia. Um, so yeah, it's just been, there's been just a lot of ongoing solidarity mm-hmm. work when it comes to that, and it's a bit stressful that he's still in this scenario, but. And it's yeah. probably, um, good to note that he needs to come back as soon as possible because he, his, um, life is threatened. Um, there are a number of people, um, there who are wanting to kill him, so they, um, he definitely needs to come back, uh, to Australia and, and be safe. Yeah, it's good that he's out, but he does need to get out of there. Okay, I'll just play a quick um, few announcements and we'll get our first interview offline. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. 
find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade iMark, a 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Right. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, and on the line, we have a Canberra school, um, a school strike for client organiser from Canberra, um, Zane Brown. Um, I actually don't know what high school he goes to and what year he's actually in. Um, but yeah, he's been heavily involved in organising, um, organising the global climate strike in Canberra. Um, so we're going to have him on the line here to have a bit of discussion to debrief about the global climate strike and maybe talk a bit about what he thinks, where he thinks the movement should go next. Um, good morning, Zane. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, um, Zane, I guess the first kind of question is how was, what is your kind of thoughts on the global climate strike as it happened in Canberra and I guess, you know, where it kind of happened, um, how it kind of went in the rest of the country? Well, for Canberra, I can say that the, the entire organising team was just blown away. It was basically more than like our best case scenario for how many people would turn up. And how and, many people did turn up in Canberra, Zane? Uh, it was 15,000 in Canberra, Excellent. which is massive. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so it was just like an incredible um, energy in the, the march, in the speeches, and just in the number of people that turned up. And um, do you think it was probably, was it even bigger than the last school strike that kind of happened? Yeah, absolutely. At the last one, we um, got 5,000 people, which was still an incredible turnout for Canberra. But we managed to triple it in the September 21 from the March 15. Yeah, and I guess in the kind of lead up to the sort of um, the global client strike, um, was it kind of reflective of the kind of building work um, that was kind of done in terms of making links with um, university students and with trade unions and potentially other kind of community organisations? What was sort of the turnout from those kind of sectors um, like in terms of Canberra? Yeah, absolutely. There was a really um, great and large uni contingent from the ANU and some people from UC, I believe. And we worked a lot with Unions ACT, who provided some great support and had some, like, really sizable actual, actually, like, contingent to the strike. And we also tried to work with just all of the other environmental campaigns in the um, ACT, including Extinction Rebellion and um, Sopadani, and all of these groups had a presence, a large presence at the... Hmm. 
Yeah, I definitely noticed. Um, so the the last school strike, there wasn't a union contingent, and there didn't there wasn't that much of a, a uni contingent. But at this school strike here in Melbourne, I believe we got almost uh, we got up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of one hundred fifty thousand people. Sorry, some some people were saying anywhere from one hundred thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand. Um, there was definitely a, a quite a strong union presence, and um, for me, I think that's really heartening because once the unions get on board, there's a lot more work that can be done, you know, uh, with regards to a strike and, and outside it. Um, can you tell, tell me, um, you know, with unions being involved now, how do you see the role of unions in helping with the school strike? Uh, well, I think unions should have a massive role to play. And I know that in the ACT, um, unions ACT are starting up their own, like, um, unionists for climate justice working groups. And I think we definitely want to work with them. And mm-hmm. I know that across the country, our um, school strike branches are working with unions quite, you know, deeply and working to actually put together comprehensive policies for what the Just Transition uh, can part of our demand will actually look like. So I feel like we need unions on board to mobilise workers on a mass scale, mm-hmm. and that's what's going to have to happen to fight the climate just climate action. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess that goes into kind of the next kind of question is now kind of you might have not had much time because it's only been a week since the global climate strike. I guess what are your kind of thoughts on where the global climate, where the sort of school strike movement should go next, because I guess one of the significant things um, in terms of progression is this is a movement that only started um, um, in November, November last year, Um, and then since then it progressed to another strike in March, which was quite massive. Um, And I guess one of the significant things about the global climate strike was it was conceptualised as a global strike in a sense that everyone had to be involved. Uh, It wasn't just, in a sense, something that was primarily led by... um, It was primarily something that was around mobilising high school students, but it was actually about mobilising even greater kind of sections of the community beyond high schools. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, what is your your thoughts on where this kind of growing movement should go kind of next in terms of, you know, political strategy and tactics and so on? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, distinction that this one was actually a global climate strike was very important, something that a lot of people were really excited about in the lead-up to September 20. I think going forward, like you said, we're a new movement, but there's a lot of momentum and there was a lot of pressure being led by us and and other environmental campaigns across the country. And basically, in my opinion, that's just something that needs to be kept up. And that's something that needs to be kept up by, you know, organising more, like, massive climate strikes like September 20, but also possibly organising smaller um, events throughout the year. Um, And I think also importantly, working with all the other environmental campaigns as much as possible, because we have to be linking up and in solidarity and Mm. having our networks working together if we're hoping to actually make a change on on a large scale. So... At the moment, there's still like discussions about what's going to happen going forward and when we're going to organise new large events. But in my opinion, there has to be a, a lot of action going forward to keep up the momentum that we've built from these events. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, my, um, I, I'm quite inspired by um, the young activists. And uh, this is a, a different generation. It's a new generation that has come up and has become active and has basically been radicalized because of the desperate nature of this situation. You know, what, what are the, um, you know, what are the people around you saying and what, what kind of, um, you know, how do they see it uh, going and how do you, how do you think it's changed the culture of, uh, young people in that now there's this huge mobilization of activism. Do you think it's changed them and, and in what way? I think it really has. I feel like, especially in the modern day, young people are very, you know, attuned to the problems of the world and especially to climate change. It's, it's constantly like one of the largest issues that in like service or whatever is ranked mm. up for us. And school strike for climate action is, is really like the first time in, in quite a long time since I've, you know, been a high schooler or a teenager that there's been actually a, a way to push back against, you know, this kind of all these issues and to kind of express this anger and this, this kind of worry, but also this, you know, profound understanding that there needs to be change. And so that's why it's really inspiring, and that's the reason that I continue to be involved with it. And, um, you know, there's talk about um, the term climate grief or climate anxiety. Do you see a lot of that in, um, your, you know, your fellow young people? And how do you cope with it? Is this a method of coping as well, the actions that are taking place? Yeah, I think it definitely is. I think there's a lot of worry about it. But it's really when you go to the climate strike and there's, like, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, it, it, it really is the best coping mechanism for me and I think a lot of people mm. that I know who, who kind of struggle with issues around this because obviously the best antidote to there being grief in your life about these major issues is actually being involved in making a change and that's really mm. the feeling that you get from these events and these actions. I know I was on a high for days afterwards. I was just so hopeful for the future that we could actually maybe do something. But, you know, we have here in Australia, um, we have a prime minister that is not just doing nothing. He seems to want to actively uh, court coal magnates and climate change deniers and, and everything. How do you cope with that? I mean, how do you reconcile the fact that mass action needs to happen, but we have a prime minister that is not listening and is not doing nothing, is doing worse than nothing. Um, you know, he, he wants to actively, you know, bring coal back, basically. I feel like there needs to be... We're never going to win this fight by convincing the people in charge, uh, the coal-loving prime ministers or even the coal kind of indifferent prime ministers that they need to do the right thing. We need to win this by being powerful enough that they're forced to make a change, being powerful enough that they can be taken down and that a new world can be built based on better principle, better. Mm. I love yeah. that answer. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's like um, it's like what um, Greta um, Thunberg said recently um, when he, she was kind of addressing the kind of, I think it was Donald Trump, wasn't it? Or someone. Um, the UN Climate Action. Yeah, UN Climate yeah. Action. Change, um, basically saying change is coming, whether you like it or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And um, when you have 100,000 people in the street 
it's really able, you're able to see that that is correct. Mm. Now, I guess, um, what is, I guess, um, any kind of final comments you'd like to kind of make, Oscar, before we, I guess, finish up? Oh, not Oscar. Uh, Zane. Zane, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Zane. <laughs> Zane, um, before we finish up the interview. <laughs> um, well, what I will say is that we're going to keep pushing and we, the, the school students are going to keep pushing. The, stu- the school students are still angry at what's happening and School Strike for Climate Action will be back and the students will be on the streets again. Fantastic. We will be right by your side, promoting your actions, being there for you, because uh, we think what you're doing is so absolutely important for the future um, of the planet. And, you know, the whole system change, not climate change, is kind of, it's the philosophy of the day. We can't keep going with the way that we're going right now. We have to have a system change. And this whole school strike for climate is pushing for that system change, which I think is fantastic. Thank you so much, Zane. We really appreciate it. Keep going um, and, you know, keep inspiring people to um, to help you with the change. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Zane. So that was Zane Brown, um, climate or school strike for climate activist uh, in and Canberra. In Canberra. All right. Now, um, just to give um, just a f- few things I'd just like to uh, mention is that internationally um, for the global co- um, climate strike, um, there was over 200 and I think, in fact, the size in New York was almost double that of um, of. Melbourne, which was so over, around for over 300,000. Wow. And then there were also massive rallies in, um, in, in, wait a minute, massive rallies in, I'm trying to think, in was Germany. Heaps in Germany. I think, I think there was up to 1.5 million across Germany or something. It was huge. Yeah. Absolutely and then huge. other parts of Europe and then even other countries like Afghanistan, mm. um, had their own climate strike, although the photos are kind of a bit terrifying because there was sort <laughs> of, um, they were sort of, the school students were kind of sort of escorted by military. Um, mm. And then there were actually some a good a number of good-sized protests in India, um, especially in even remote parts of India that technically haven't seen much mobilisations. And mm. I think it's also quite significant that in Australia, uh, a number of rural, rural parts of... Um, I was just about to say, shout-out to all the regional areas that had their own climate strikes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, a friend of mine went to Mornington recently and... In the daily pa- in one of the daily papers, local papers, there was a big feature on the big climate strike that happened in Mornington of like I think it had over 500 to 800 people. That's excellent. Well, I know that there were several um, remote schools um, in the north of um, Australia that had um, a bunch of protests, and also my region um, of Albury Wodonga and Wangaratta. Albury Wodonga had 2,000 people, and Wangaratta had 200. So. Yeah, we were really rocking northeast Victoria with the protests. It was great. The good thing that I um, got from it was uh, I cannot remember where um, there was a just a single high school girl who sat down with um, a sign in one of the coal seam gas towns. I mean, that was pretty brave of her. You know, she's right in the middle and in the thick of things, and it was only her. Uh, but what people were doing is if they didn't have a climate strike, near them, they were making their own climate strike. So I know in Tully they had a couple of people and they just went around and um, planted a bunch of trees, which was something really active and good to do. Um, 
you know, just on that, the, the topic of trees, um, one of the things that we have to do, so it's, we're getting to a desperate climate situation, obviously. Um, so not only should we be cutting, um, carbon emissions, we need to do drawdown technology and, you know, we have this great technology, you know, it's pretty cheap, it builds itself and it draws down a stupid load of carbon. It's called trees. And so we need to be planting as many trees as possible. And so that should be part of our efforts. Drawdown technology, which is trees, um, should be, we, we should be planting on, um, trees on a massive scale. And I know in India, in Ethiopia, they've planted, I think, 350 million trees. Uh, in India, I think they planted about 200 million trees. There are a whole bunch of countries that are starting to do this. Unfortunately, um, here in the West, we don't seem to be mobilising um, with this sort of initiative. It's part of what we need to do. It's not all of what we need to do, but it definitely is part of it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. I might just go play. Actually, you might play a quick few announcements. Actually, maybe we'll go to have a bit of a breather and we'll play a, a bit of a song. So I have a song here. I put something here. Um, by, um, Indigenous, um, female so- folk singer, um, Emily Wara Mara, um, and her song Black Boy. So we'll go play that for the next four minutes and then just have a bit of a breather before we go on to the next sort of news article. Da 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 
support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, it is 7:38 a.m. Um, and now something I was thinking of doing is I have a recording um, of a speech um, that was done by Alex Bainbridge. Um, it's on basically on the question of socialist strategy today um, in sort of the era. I think it's probably a good sort of recording to play, especially since it's reflecting on, you know, going past the global climate strike with all the developments that are happening in the UK and the United States, etc. Um, yeah, Alex Bainbridge outlines a bit of a kind of talk on, you know, how can we win, you know, a better world today, etc. And this was at a public seminar that happened in on, I think, in at the start of September. Um, so, yeah. And been, that was in Queensland. Yeah, in Queensland. So, yeah, I thought I'll play a bit of a recording of this, probably play the first... 16 minutes and then we might take a breather and then go on to some more news the activist calendar then maybe we'll play the rest of it for the rest of the program all right so yeah i'll just quickly play it now 
we've had this nice discussion about all the problems of capitalism and now the question is, well, actually, is there something we can realistically do about it? And if, we, if there is, what is it and how do we achieve it? And it would be quite easy to kind of go back and just look in the history books and just, you know, repeat the sort of lessons of the past. And I am going to come back to that later in the talk, but I wanted to, as much as possible, just, you know, look at today's world and, like, look at it from as, as much as possible, not an ideological perspective, but just let's look at the practical reality around us and what do we practically do in relation to that. And I wanted to uh, start, therefore, with um, something which is happening in Britain. I mean, British politics at the moment is all... Um, uh, it's all been for years now being focused on Brexit. We've now got Boris Johnson in and you know, the whole scandal at the moment about um, you know, having the break in Parliament and all this kind of stuff. And um, there's several things you could say about that. But I want to go back just about two weeks ago. Um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who's the leader of the opposition and has kind of created a, you know, a, a made his mark in Labor by basically you know, putting forward a much more left-wing um, platform and basically essentially... You know, yeah, campaigning on a on a on a you know for a socialist change, and uh, Corbyn basically said, wrote a letter to all the politicians and said, "Look, if you put me in as British Prime Minister just for a few weeks, uh, I'll you know we'll we'll cancel this idea about a No Deal Brexit, and then we'll, we'll then we'll call new elections, and then all of the like you think about all of the mainstream moderate forces in British politics, so and especially the Liberal Democrats. There's a bunch of you know right wing Labour MPs that are split off." Um, and you know the sort of so-called moderate Tories, that all of them are saying Brexit is the worst thing that could possibly happen um, to Britain. We've got to stop Brexit at all costs. Jeremy Corbyn is you know is a failure because he's not fighting Brexit enough. Brexit is the worst thing at all costs. And then uh, Jeremy Corbyn says, okay, here's a plan, a realistic, achievable plan uh, to end Brexit. And what did all of those moderate centrist forces say? No way. <laughs> and then so I mean the, the conclusion from that is. The rulers don't want socialism no matter what. Even if this is the worst crisis, you know, Brexit is the worst thing that, from their point of view that could happen in, in Britain. Um, it doesn't matter how bad it is. Oh, my God, Jeremy Corbyn, even worse. Right? I mean, the point is, like, you know, at all costs, they don't want socialism, even if it's in a moderate form, even if it's you know, through the respectable parliamentary channels. It doesn't matter what the, what the story is. So that's conclusion number one, right? That's in terms of the elite and what they want. Now, the second conclusion is more from our point of view, right? And it sort of seems a bit um, frightening, but nevertheless, I mean, like, you know, I'll come back to this. There's actually, there is, a, there is a hopeful conclusion from it. But the starting point is, there is no one coming to save us. <laughs> you know, if, if we're going to save ourselves, it's going to be us saving ourselves. There's not, there's not some saviour from on high who's going to come and deliver. And I want to give just one example. This graph is a graph of cumulative worldwide carbon dioxide emissions. So, right on the very end is like 1750 right up to um, 2017. And so, you see, even like up to 1850, even like 1900, there had been a noticeable increase, but it was still very tiny compared to, compared to what we've got now. Um, and that line that I've drawn in the middle, which is in 1992, now, I could have gone back a couple of years back. 1988 uh, was the year that James Hansen... Um, presented the evidence in, before US Congress to basically show that climate change was real. And by 2014, um, global worldwide emissions of CO2 had more than doubled um, between 1998 and, and 2014. And even from 1992, I mean, those figures only go up to 2017, it's not quite doubling, but 1992 was the year of the Earth Summit, the Rio Earth Summit. 
So that was, at the time, it was the largest ever gathering of heads of state that had ever happened in the world. Uh, it was a big scandal about, you know, is George Bush Senior, who was in the White House, is George Bush Senior going to turn up or not, and all this sort of controversies. And, and we on the left were basically, you know, essentially saying it was a bit of hot air. But if you, if you judge it on its own terms, so don't, so ignore the criticisms of the critics, but if you judge it on its own terms, that Earth Summit basically said climate change is real. Um, that was the one that started the UN uh, Convention on Climate Change, out of which we had the Kyoto Protocol, out of which we had the Paris Agreement, all those sort of things came out of there. In 1992, they said, 1990 is going to be the baseline year. We're going to measure our emission reductions from 1990 levels onwards. So if, if that Earth Summit had been... If, if the countries of the world had done what they said they were going to do, we would have left that Earth Summit and, uh, and emissions would have gone down from 1990 levels, but instead, since then, it's not only gone up, it's more than doubled. <laughs> All right, that's, that's the thing. So, so you know, in terms of, you know, so this is, what I mean, this is what I mean I say is, for capitalism, there is no bottom line. Like, they want to make money, doesn't matter what. That is the only criteria. Must make profits. And it's not even the case that, like, oh, well, you know, it took us a bit of a while to get used to the idea, but now, you know, countries are sort of, um, you know, now we're sort of getting onto it and everyone talks about their emission reductions and, and you know, their Paris targets and whatever else. But, you know, you just have to think about this. Last month, July 2019, was the hottest month on record. The hottest month on record ever. Now, this month, August 2019, we've got people deliberately lighting fires in the Amazon. <laughs> And we've got the government of Brazil encouraging it and promoting it. And we've got the government of the United States, the most powerful government in the world, actively supporting and promoting it. And, you know, and in general, capitalist governments around the world are sort of doing nothing about it. Now, you know, that is, that's not like 25 years ago. That's right now today. Right now today, this is, what, this is, what, um, uh, this is capitalism, full steam ahead. You know, burn, cook the planet, carbon pollution is non-stop. <laughs> and if, if you... Um, I guess to sort of underline this even more, uh, this was a Green F article from May and it, um, it uh, you know, echoed, I mean, lots of media covered it, it wasn't like some weird Green F thing, um, but this is a Green F article from May this year reporting on an international monetary fund report that governments around the world have got subsidies to fossil fuel industries totalling more than $5.2 trillion dollars. A new report by the International Monetary Fund reveals that global fossil fuel subsidies grew to $5.2 trillion, 6.5% of combined global GDP. The report found the annual energy subsidies in Australia totaled $29 billion. So here that is governments of the world giving free money to the fossil fuel corporations, pollute the planet more, even though 25 years ago we said, you know, this is a serious problem, we need to do something about it. And right now, this year... <laughs> Trillions, trillions of dollars, free money to corporations, please pollute the, money, the, the, the planet more. So this is what I mean when I say there is no one coming to save us. The only way we get out of this mess is if people step onto the stage of history themselves and actually take power out of the hands of um, the corporate elite and their governments, their bought and paid for politicians. So the conclusion is we need our own power. We can't rely on... Capitalist power structures, the capitalist power systems anymore. We need to have our own power. We need a democratic people's power. We need a democratic 
um, you know, people's um, uh, process. And, you know, in other words, the, what that means is we need a revolution. Because a revolution, a revolution at its most basic level, what that means is it's a change in the way that power is structured and organised in society. So, from, you know, in, in, terms of, in terms of us solving our problem, that's the first thing we need to recognise. Our goal is we need a change in that power structure. We need a, um, uh, we need to have, we need to have revolution. Now, um, okay, we look at today's world because, you know, we can go back. It's easy to sort of look back and, um, at the, the Russian Revolution of 1917, now over 100 years ago. Um, and uh, I 100% would you know, advocate that people study that. There's a lot of useful things to learn from that experience and a lot of lessons that we can, we can draw and I'm going to come back to that. But I think also the truth of the matter is that if you, if you ask people to, in today's world what is the face of socialism... They're less likely to say Vladimir Lenin, and they're more likely to say um, someone like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn or whatever else. And I think that's actually, you know, I think we need to devise a strategy for social change, starting from the realities of today's world, um, and 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 not like just treating um, political theory as if it's like some bible we just read in a history book, and then you know everything comes from that. Um, and, I, and I think especially. You know, I mean, there has been a big change in um, in the uh, in the world in the, you know, 100, compared to 100 years ago. Whereas now people are so much used to parliamentary democracy, capitalist democracy, in a way that wasn't the case 100 years ago. Uh, and you think about like you know, even um, even up until World War Two. I mean, the, women didn't win the right to vote in France till 1944. And in World War Two, you had you know half of Europe was um, taken over by sort of fascist dictatorship. It, you know there was no democracy. Parliamentary democracy was very fragile. And even a few decades before that, most countries in Europe didn't have universal suffrage. Whereas now, universal suffrage, even though I mean our democratic rights are being curtailed and infringed uh, uh, quite uh, seriously, um, nevertheless, I think there is a certain expectation in people's minds that you know, there's a certain legitimacy in the minds of ordinary people in the parliamentary system, despite the fact that the parliamentary system is the system that is giving us that, you know, $5.2 trillion, $5 trillion uh, you know, subsidies to the, um, to the, uh, you know, to the, to the fossil fuel industries. And, and I would argue very strongly the case that despite the, the surface, the apparent features of democracy, the parliamentary democracies that we face are actually fundamentally undemocratic. They're fundamentally organisations that reflect the will of big business. To me, I think that actually the most accurate way to describe, say, the parliamentary system in Australia is that it is a corporate dictatorship disguised by democratic forms. The substance of the matter is that there are two major parties, both of whom take turns in forming government, and those two major parties are both bought and paid for by the big corporations. They both represent corporate will in slightly different ways, but nevertheless, that's the policies that they, they represent. You can't rise to the top of um, either party without being you know, a slave to the corporate interests, um, even if they might not necessarily agree in every respect on every policy, but, um, but nevertheless, they both represent corporate interests and, it's, and they use democratic forms to disguise what is essentially a corporate dictatorship. Okay. Now, so 
Moving along, I do want to, as I said, I want to come back to, well, what are the lessons of the past that we can, that still hold relevance for us today? And I guess I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, but I think this is what I think is the summary in terms of if we're looking for, if we're looking for a strategy for how we can change society. The first one, um, the goal has got to be an anti-capitalist goal. I mean, like, if we're, if we're not, um, if we're not aiming at restructuring, transforming this society so that it's A, not exploitative, not oppressive, and also B, that it can be democratic and people control it, um, you know, we're, we're going to go off the tracks. So the goal has got to be anti-capitalism in one way to express it. Socialism, I guess, is the more positive way to express it. Especially, I think, a lot of people sort of have got this... A lot of young people... A lot of this, the idea of anti-capitalism is a lot more popular today uh, than it has been in the past, but a, a lot of people have got very confused ideas about what that means, like, oh, yeah, anti-capitalism, that means shopping at the organic market, it doesn't mean shopping at Coles, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, there's more to anti-capitalism than that. Um, second point is that uh, we need revolution, which I said, as we, which as I said before, is a, is a change in the, in the power structure. And you only have to ask yourself the question, is there ever, anywhere in history, in any country, any part of the world, any, part, any time in history, where a ruling power has given up power voluntarily and the answer is no. <laughs> so what we need is we need to find the way to actually uh, take that power out of their hands and, and you know, use, that, use that to build a new, um, a new power. Now the third point, mass action. It's like the source of their power is, you know, when it comes down to it, is the fact of their own wealth, their own money, and they've got the power structures that sort of are kept in place by that money. Um, but that is a source of their power. Now we don't essentially have <laughs> the money. The uh, Oxfam's, you know, shrinking number of uh, billionaires in the world that own half the same wealth as half the world's population. Um, we don't have access to that kind of wealth. What we do have is the power of numbers, and therefore, you know, any strategy for change which is going to be successful from our point of view is you know, going to leverage our source, of that, of our source of power. And our source of power is, is, is the mass action. Now, now, that might sort of seem sort of quite obvious, but what that, the conclusion of that therefore means is we're not fundamentally going to Parliament and saying, please, nice Parliament, do it for us. We're not sort of saying, let's sign petitions and lobby, um, uh, lobby the, you know, the current rulers to, to do it for us. There's lots of different ways of... And also, it, it also means we're not going to smash windows or sit in the streets and just by the power of shock value, um, shock you know, the ruling class into, sort of, into giving up power because none of those things have worked in the past and there's no reason to think that that has changed today. What we are talking about is building up the source of our own strength, the source of a, you know, a people power, that's the fourth point, people power, um, as the as the alternative to the current capitalist power structure, and it, and our method of um, uh, of winning change is is about you know mobilising at the grassroots. Now I'm going to come back to that um, more, um, but um, the next point, you know, the struggle for reforms. Uh, it's in general, I think you know, you'd say that the, the lessons that we have learned, this, you know, the socialist movement has learned over, you know, over the last 150 or more years, has basically been there's sort of two kinds of mistakes you can make. 
So one kind of mistake you can make is to sort of um, is to uh, drift into what you know, they call a reformist perspective, which is the kind of please miss the nice capitalists, be nice to us and give us these reforms. Um, basically limiting yourselves to what, what the ruling class is prepared to offer. That's one mistake. Or, or even, even if you do it not in a sort of a timid way like that, but in a basically just limiting yourself to, um, to trying to make incremental improvements in the system you know, as it exists, that strategy hasn't worked. Um, on the other hand, if you just stand on the sidelines and say, revolution now, we need socialism, that sort of, that sort of standing on the sidelines also doesn't work. <laughs> so for us in Socialist Alliance, we want, we're, we're looking for a socialist strategy. And I guess I, I meant to say in the beginning, like I'm not trying to <laughs> uh, present this talk as if you know, I, I'm expressing the fond of all wisdom. And it's actually, th- this is a discussion that we all need to have. And I think that, as I said, in today's world, there isn't an example of a, of a successful socialist change in an advanced capitalist country. We, we are all of us in the process of figuring it out. So this is just you know, some of the guidelines and parameters and, and the starting point for the discussion about how we change it. But anyway, in terms of, in socialist lines, what we view is the strategy is it needs to involve that struggle for reforms. We need to be involved, obviously, with the, with the mass action, like with the involving people, like not just lobbying and asking politely, but actually drawing people into um, struggles for improvement, exactly like, for example, happened with the marriage equality campaign, which lasted over 10 years, but people would come out again and again and again. And of course, there are lots of different elements to that campaign, but one of the really important elements was that the protest movement just never stopped. It just kept on coming back again and again and again and mobilising that power of you know, mass numbers. At the beginning, um, the Labour Party and even, even some of the queer bureaucracies were against, oh, don't, don't ask about this marriage equality. It's too much to even ask for. Uh, just limit, limit yourselves to civil unions and Labour at the time was promising to sort of um, to change laws that involved discrimination, which they did when Kevin Rudd got into power. But the protest movement, right from the very beginning, despite opposition, said, no, we want full equality, we want marriage equality, um, and that protest movement just kept on coming back again and again and again until it won. I think that's, um, that's one example among many that we could, uh, we could talk of. So the idea is, in the struggle for reforms, we need to support Every, we need to be involved in the struggle for reforms and improvements, but link that to a broader strategy of social change, which is a more fundamental, transformative or revolutionary approach. And then the final point that I'd make in this sort of section about lessons from the past is uh, what I put in inverted commas, leadership. Um, As I said before, I mean, for, for us, the, 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 the motive force of social change is what's happening at the grassroots, is that rank and file, the mass involvement. But the truth of the matter is, the reality of the matter is, rank and file will can only be expressed when it is organised, and organisation requires leadership. And, and I think, you know, from that point of view, it's like it is, it is impossible to imagine that um, we're just going to have protest movements and sort of spontaneous struggles and just by accident... Uh, we're going to just find ourselves in a revolutionary situation where we've, where we've you know, transformed society and, and capitalists sort of had centuries of actual experience <laughs> um, buying off and diverting attention and you know, maintaining their rule in all sorts of different ways. They've, they have literally had centuries, centuries of experience of dividing and conquering um, and maintaining their rule. Um, it's not going to happen by accident. And therefore, 
we need to organise, not only in trade unions and social movements for improvements and reforms, we actually need to organise today, even though we turn out to be a, you know, a, a small crowd, we need to organise for that fundamental social change, for that revolutionary change. And therefore, for us, that's, that's a... I mean, that's, you know, a lot of the other stuff is actually... That is, that is a strategic nub of the question. If you actually want to make change, you need to organise for it, and that means building a revolutionary socialist organisation today. Um, uh, uh, yep. Now, I don't have a nice um, picture of... Um, Bernie Sanders, but if I had thought about it, I'd have a nice sort of, you know, um, you know, Bernie Sanders picture come up now. Because I think, as I said before, it's not enough to... Right, we just have to pause that for a bit because it's now 8am um, and we're now in... The, um, but just to... For listeners who are just coming in, um, you're listening to a recording by social, um, by Socialist Alliance and Green Left TV, um, social, Green Left Weekly, I mean, Socialist Strategy Today, which is a recording of a talk by Alex Bainbridge. Um, so that was just the first 20 minutes of the talk. We'll play um, the other 10 minutes um, towards the end of our program, and it's just talking about how we can build socialism in terms of the 21st century. Now, it's um, 8 a.m. now. Um, or getting close to 8.01am. So I was going to pass it over to Megan to do the activist calendar in terms of what's coming up in the activist world right now. Yep, so we've got a lot... We've got a lot of stuff um, coming up. Um, so Sunday, so tomorrow, Sunday, September the 29th, we've got Extinction Rebellion Derebin, uh, Climate Protest Drowning, Rise Up with Extinction Rebellion Derebin, 11am, and it's Meet at Northcote Town Hall, ready to march down High Street. 12pm, uh, occupy the corner of High Street and Separation Street with our non-violent drown-in. Uh, you can uh, find out more information on Facebook. Saturday, October the 5th, so next weekend, uh, music, Woody Guthrie's Songs of Freedom, that's at 8pm. Um, sorry to pause you there, there's actually a yep. number, it looks like there's a number of events we haven't included in the activist calendar. No. So how about I take over until and then we get to that? Yeah, okay. Well done, so Jacob. What's, um, happening is, um, there's actually going to be a blockade IMARC open organising meeting, um, this Sunday, and that's going to be happening on RMIT Building 80. Um, level nine, or maybe build, is there an RMIT building eight or is it building 80? You're talking to the wrong person. Yeah, well, okay. So it says RMIT Building 8, Level 9, Room 13. Um, so that's happening from 1.30. There'll be a media briefing and then 2 p.m. they'll start the organising. Um, the next thing that's um, happening is... Um, yep, yeah, I've got it here. There's a film and discussion night on Venezuela and the current situation and that's going to be happening at the Maritime Union of Australia on... Um, which is on 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. Um, so that's happening from 6.30 to 9 o'clock on Thursday, the 3rd of October. Um, and then there's also going to be an event organised by Seed um, and GetUp, um, Power of Country Melbourne, which is going to be hearing from traditional owners about anti-fracking campaigns. So that's happening on Thursday, the 3rd of October, 6 to 8pm at, at the Collingwood Town Hall. Um, and then the next kind of thing that's happening is, yep, I can now pass it on to okay. Megan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, I want to I'll just also advertise this a last thing. So also happening on Monday is a Green Left Weekly discussion circle on Marx's lessons for today's climate res rebels. So that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city.
Okay. So back to me. Uh, so again, Saturday, October the 5th, we've got music, Woody Guthrie, Songs of Freedom, and that's at 8pm at the Athenaeum Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Monday, October the 7th, there's the Extinction Rebellion Spring Rebellion beginning. It's the opening ceremony, and just letting you know, this is a week-long thing. Uh, so the opening ceremony, um, uh, people are meeting at base camp in Carlton Gardens. So the idea is um, for Extinction Rebellion to camp in the Carlton Gardens for the week of um, uh, of the rebellion. Uh, so camp uh, meet at base camp in Carlton Gardens at 4 p.m. And uh, they'll march onto the road, block together and arrive at Flinders Street around 5 p.m. Uh, if you want any more information, you can actually just check on Facebook for that. Uh, also on Monday, October the 7th, there is a public meeting, the Cherry Picker's Daughter, a celebration of the life of Wiradjuri elder Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert. That's at 6.15 at the Wheeler Centre, which is 176 Lonsdale Street in the city. On Thursday, October the 10th, uh, there's a public meeting, Writing in Exile, Australian Kurdish writer Rosa Germain talks with Sami Shah. And that's at 6.15, again at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Lonsdale Street in the city. On Saturday, October the 12th, there is a counter-rally against the March for Babies. Uh, So basically, uh, anti-abortion people are going to be uh, organising a march, and this is the counter-rally against that. Uh, So that's at 12.30 at Parliament House, Spring Street uh, in the city. Also on Saturday, October the 12th, there is a music fundraiser for Grandmothers Against Removals. Uh, Radical Punk's Monkey Butler and When Our Turn Comes play in support of GMAR, a grandmother-led movement fighting against the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families. That's at 8pm. It's $10 cover charge, Cafe Gummo Bar, 711, so 711 High Street in Thornbury. Just want to point out that when our turn comes, uh, one of our uh, radio announcers is... Uh, one of the band members for When Our Turn Comes, and they've just put out a great um, song called Climate Strike, which is fantastic. Definitely get along to that. Uh, On Sunday, October the 13th, Melbourne Marathon, Run for Refugees, Run, Walk or Push the Pram, but do it with Team ASRC at the Melbourne Marathon for the hope of a new life. On Monday, October the 14th, uh, there's a rally, Stop Oceana Gold, Stand with the Filipino People of DGPO and the Save Nueva Vizcaya Movement to stop the abuses of Australian mining company Oceana Gold. Do you know if they're coming to the IMARC conference? Oceanical? Um, Yes, they should be. Excellent. Yeah, so, um, yep, so one of the IMARC conference um, attendees. Uh, So, yes, that's um, event Monday, October the 14th at 12 noon at 357 Collins Street in the city. Now, on Tuesday, October the 15th, we've got a public meeting, The History and Relevance of Victorian Progressivism. Marilyn Lake will discuss the significance of Victorian and Australian innovation in establishing decent, decent wages and working conditions in the late 19th and 20th centuries. That's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, so Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. On Sunday, sorry, Saturday, October the 26th, uh, there's a protest, No Right to Discriminate, uh, Hash Kill the Bills, 2pm State Library at 328 Swanston Street in the city. 
Um, and also on Saturday, October the 26th, Music Glitterous. Four accomplished, unapologetic and fearless female musicians who roar through uncompromising and unforgettable punk rock shows. 7pm at the Tote Band Room, 67 Johnston Street in Collingwood. Uh, Monday, October the 28th to Thursday, October the 31st, the big one, Blockade IMARC. For climate justice, some of the world's most worst climate criminals are gathering in Melbourne um, from October the 28th to October the 31st. Uh, Companies that profit from fueling climate change, stealing Indigenous land and exploiting workers will gather at the International Mining and Resources Conference, IMARC. Their actions drive animal extinction as well as mass displacement of people. And this is from 6am each day and it's at the Convention Centre, so Convention and Exhibition Centre, one Convention Centre place at South Wharf. It's a very important one to um, attend. It's going to be huge and we're looking to basically disrupt those who are some of the worst climate offenders and human rights offenders. And the last one is Wednesday, October the 30th. There's a public meeting, Corporate Violence and the East India Company. Historian William uh, Dalrymple discusses some lessons from the past. And that's 6pm at the Athenaeum Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. And that's all for our activist calendar, unless you have something else, Jacob. Ah, no, that should be it. Um, Actually, the other thing is there is going to be, um, during the Spring Rebellion, there is plan to be, if you're in the Geelong area, there's going to be a rally on October the 12th is Saturday, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I believe it is. October yeah. the 12th, there'll be a sort of die-in, I think, at 10am or 11am in the Geelong Moor on Saturday, October the 12th. So that should be... Yeah, if you can get along to that, get down to Geelong and help them out, absolutely. Yeah, well, if you're in Geelong, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, some of us are going down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I just go... Um, well, um, just let me play a quick announcement. Um, we might, and we might play the rest of the recording, um, that we played, uh, from Socialism Today, um, from this, uh, recording of this talk in, um, Brisbane. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. We just gave um, the actors calendar and now I'm passing on to Megan. Yes. So, um, as you know, um, dear listeners, uh, we are living in interesting times. We need to fight hard for, uh, you know, the the whole destiny of the planet. Basically, the, you know, the, with the whole climate crisis, we're fighting hard for things like workers' rights, indigenous rights, and basically um, a fair world for us all. And one of the things that Green Left Weekly does is provides media and analysis um, for the people by the people, which is a really 
really important factor. Unfortunately, in the current media landscape, um, most of the media outlets are corporate-based, and as we know, that means that they represent corporate interests. Green Left Weekly is individual. It's one of the uh, few media outlets that uh, represent people and that bring topics and issues to the fore that are all about people so all about the environment all about indigenous issues workers rights refugee rights etc um so it's really really important for people to support green left weekly if you can afford it um it's for as little as five dollars a month you can actually get the digital copy of green left weekly of course it's available online for free we obviously don't put it um, on a paywall but even as a supporter you can uh, pay for five dollars per month for the digital um a copy of it to be emailed directly to you. And then you can do $10 per month for the digital and also the print edition, um, which can be um, sent to you. But it's really, really important. At the moment, it's a critical time for us. We need to get our ideas out there. We need to support School Strike for Climate. We need to support Extinction Rebellion, the refugee movement, etc. And you supporting us helps us magnify our voice and their voice to bring about a better world, basically. Yeah. Alright, thanks very much, Megan. Um, so now I'll just go, we'll play the rest of the recording, um, because it's a 30 minute special. We play 20 minutes of this talk by Alex Bainbridge on how, on the question of how you can build socialism in the 21st century today. And this is a recording from, uh, a seminar that happened in Brisbane at the start of the month, um, or by Green Left Weekly. So I'll just go play it now. you know, how we can change things from here. And I think that it's, it's hard to imagine in today's world that that's not going to involve some element of participation in the parliamentary process because that's what most people look to as the, the source of authority um, in, in power, in society. And um, that doesn't in any way change the perspective, which is one of revolutionary change, but it, it is actually... And, and actually, going back to the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution 100 years ago, they said the same perspective, the same thing as well. Uh, Lenin mocked some ultra-left um, critics in, uh, in Germany who said, oh, Parliament is now historically and politically obsolete. <laughs> and, and Lenin said, oh, you know, politically obsolete? Oh, there's still millions and millions of, um, uh, of, of workers are still supporting these old conservative um, organisations in Parliament and you can't, you can't say that it's politically obsolete until the workers from their own experience, not because someone told them at a book, but from their, from their own experience, they've realised that the parliamentary system is an undemocratic system and we need to build not a backwards undemocratic system, we need to go forwards to a more uh, democratic system. Anyway, I, I want to quote now, um, and this is sort of getting close to the end of my uh, what I want to say, from a quite an interesting discussion paper by a guy called um, Tyler Zimmer. I don't really know very much about him, <laughs> Um, but he's from the the, um, the the Democratic Socialists of America. In fact, let me go back a sec because I, I said before, I, you know, it'd be nice to have a, a picture of Bernie Sanders up here. Um, when I say that, there's something quite exciting happening in the United States and and um, and, uh, and Britain in particular, and in some other places as well, um, where socialism is becoming getting a, you know, a, a popular awareness and 
um, and support that you know, is new, and especially in the United States, where even just the idea of healthcare for all was some, you know, well, even Obamacare, like you know, the sort of the miserably pathetic, you know, Republican um, healthcare plan. That, that was I mean, Obama just did a, adopted a Republican healthcare plan. Uh, that was considered socialism by the sort of Fox News and the sort of Republican right, you know. Um, so. Uh, So there is something interesting and dramatic happening in um, in uh, uh, in the United States and, and other places as well, but it's important that we don't look at it just as the individual Bernie Sanders or the individual Jeremy Corbyn or the individual Alexandria Ocasio Cortez for a few reasons. I mean, one is that they're not perfect, and and there's any number of criticisms you can make. And I did an interview on Green Left TV, which is worth having a look, with a U.S. socialist called Paul LeBlanc, and he put forward, I think, a, a very a sensible argument that we should socialists should be supporting Bernie Sanders and other people who run on the Democratic ballot line, uh, supporting all their strengths, not being afraid to criticise their mistakes, but linking that to this um, this this process of uh, creating a grassroots socialist um, organising organising pro- process. So I think the important thing for us is it's not about the individuals; it's about the the popular reaction and the building up of a popular grassroots, um, you know, the mass action popular power uh, as part of that strategy for, um, for change. Now, so this guy Tyler Zimmer from the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, he's uh, got a paper which is called is a, is a Revolutionary Rupture with Capitalism Possible? And he's um, part of the Democratic Socialists of America. He's very much got this idea about we want to you know, elect a Bernie Sanders government and, and all this sort of stuff. And he sort of says... And this is an answer to uh, someone who's basically made an argument that all that can be hoped for in today's world is, is you know, reforms through Parliament. And he says, well, still, the question remains, how do we get from capitalism to something qualitatively different? No one is in a position to decisively answer this question for certain now. And, um, and I think that's true. I think, I think all of us, as I said before, all of us are part of a discussion about um, about you know, uh, how we're going to achieve social change in today's world. But he says, this much is clear. We have to find ways to take advantage of every opportunity to increase working class confidence and organisation, no matter how small or partial it may be. Revolutionaries must be deeply involved in day-to-day struggles for reforms because they make the lives of workers better now, but also because they teach workers how to fight. So for those two reasons, we need to be involved in, you know, in struggles for reforms. And he says, we've actually got to win some of these reforms now. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I actually think in today's world, given that, given that UN report about 12 years to save the planet and now down to 11, I think we actually need to be talking about making revolution for real in the next 10 years. But either way, whether we, whether we do or don't, either way, we need to have some serious emission reductions and we need to have some, you know, some you know, improvements in other respects as well. We've actually got to win some of these reforms in the here and now in order to convince people that it's worth it to engage in collective action and challenge the bosses. The case for solidaristic strategies for change can only be won by example. What's more, we need to succeed in decommodifying basic social goods in order to prove that alternatives to the market are feasible and worth fighting for. So in a United States context especially, decommodifying basic social goods. An example of that would be healthcare. Like at the moment, if the only way you can get to your doctor is with private health insurance or spending your own money, that's 
commodified healthcare, um, whereas not quite Australia, but say the, you know, the British National Health Service or some of the other health services in Europe, where you just walk into the hospital, you walk, walk into the doctor, you don't have to pay a cent, uh, that's a decommodified health, um, health system. And he's right. I mean, when people see the example of, even, even examples like Medicare, which aren't perfect by a long way, they still actually make it easier to, to get a sense of, oh, yeah, well, we could have a, we could have a society which would run on human need. You know, Medicare is a, is a partial step towards that. Okay, but then he goes on to say, um, another ingredient is needed also. <laughs> Layers of workers who can act in, independently in a coordinated fashion to win the masses to the idea that going beyond capitalism is possible and worth fighting for. This layer cannot be a small sect or party outside the class. Um, it must be a collection of respected working class fighters who spent a long time winning trust by engaging in the struggle against capital. Now I should say, I mean, this guy has got an idea of like a Bernie Sanders style government will comes to power, in, but then there's some rupture and then it's either got to go backwards to sort of you know, neoliberalism or else forwards to, um, to socialist change or more fundamental change. And uh, so then he goes on to say, um, the, those, these fighters must be prepared for and expect that social democracy will reach a crossroads wherein the choice will be to maintain capitalism at all costs or else to maintain pro-worker reforms by going beyond capitalism. This crossroads will arise because capitalism inevitably produces crises that, as we've seen, undercut the capitalist profits and serve as the material basis for delivering social democratic reforms. Um, those unwilling to go beyond capitalism will then be obliged to impose austerity, break strikes, discipline rebellion and do whatever it takes to re-establish favourable conditions for capitalist profit making. I'm finishing up. If nobody prepares for this crossroads, it is highly unlikely that any revolutionary transformation can be achieved. So I think that we need to be open to new forms of organisation and, um, uh, but critically we have to continue arguing for the case for socialist change and being involved in um, social struggles along the way. I think this is probably the slide that I wish I'd had before. Um, you know, so, the, so just to go through this quickly, first of all this is the, this is the face of what a lot of people see but the, the reality is there's actually more than just the individual and this is just a small chapter of um, democratic socialists but they've gone from a a tiny moribund organisation of very old people to now a very young and dynamic um, organisation of, of 60,000. Now, I don't have time to sort of talk about it in detail, but this is, this is a picture from Venezuela. And I think Venezuela shows a similar kind of example where a government was elected uh, that actually had a genuine interest in um, looking after the welfare of the, of the mass of people and introduced a whole series of reforms that... Capitalists didn't like and they fought back against it and then the response of the government was to organise and mobilise the people um, to actually uh, defend those reforms and defend the government against attack. And I think my, my opinion is that the stage, that's an unfinished struggle in Venezuela. Um, and so it only sort of shows us part way, it only shows us part of the example, but nevertheless it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an important example to look at of, you know, of, of this sort of process unfolding in today's world. And finally, just to the, the final picture I wanted to come back to is the, uh, the a picture from Rojava, which Kamala mentioned in her talk. But this is another um, very contemporary example that's happening right now today in northern Syria where 
there is a grassroots democratic process of you know, political transformation taking place. Again, it's incomplete and it's only in part of the country and there's, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily uh, immediately you know, applicable, but there's also one, one thing it's inspiring to just look at just to see that example and to um, no doubt there are things that we can, uh, we can learn from that as well. And then just very quickly, finally, the thing I'm going to finish on, um, whatever else we're going to say about socialist strategy, one thing is also 100% clear is that any strategy for social change in today's world is going to involve, is going to be intertwined with the connection to um, avert the climate crisis. That's it. You're listening to that was Alex Bainbridge um, from um, speaking on socialist strategy today, um, and it was a recording of a talk that he gave in Brisbane um, earlier this month. Um, so we have at least um, four minutes left. Um, what is kind of like a news story you like to share, um, Megan? Um, actually, I don't know. There's a couple of things um, I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to give myself a shameless plug. I'm actually talking um, this coming Sunday on 3CR's show Freedom of Species, and that's uh, 1 o'clock on, um, on this coming Sunday. I'm going to be talking about a bunch of things, but just connecting up um, animal rights issues with regards to systemic change and bringing a bit of a socialist slant to that. So, hmm. yeah, tune in if you're at all, all interested. Hmm. Um, well, actually, what would be interesting to talk about will be um, just a bit of um, some of the stuff that's happening in Britain. Now, um, we won't be able to talk fully about the kind of chaos that's kind of happening around (laughs) Brexit right now. Um, (laughs) And Boris Johnson. But there has been some interesting kind of developments in um, at the Labour Party conference. Um, And in fact, one of the main big things, especially in light of this massive sort of climate movement that's happening, and um, is... uh, is basically um, the Labor Party committing to a Green New Deal, um, mm. which I think is good. And, I mean, I think, you know, the Green New Deal has limitations. There's, for, for all intents and purposes, it could turn just in, uh, be co-opted by capitalist institutions and essentially just be a mm. way of greening capitalism. But as I believe, um, what Jeremy Corbyn wants to do is have these big initiatives um, be at least 51% owned by the government. Is that correct? Yes. The majority so, owned by the government, which is a really, really important thing because, yeah. you know, the, our getting out of this situation with these big deals, is it should not be market-based. It should not be corporate-based. It should be government-based, basically. Mm. Yeah, and there's also the uh, interesting kind of discussion to be had, um, and these are going to be some of the discussions we're going to have about blockade IMARC in the mining um, industry, um, because the mining industry is definitely has been under capitalism is inherently exploitative, but you still Absolutely. need mining at some point to be able to make yeah, a lot I mean, of materials. Yeah, I mean, we still need new. our kitchen utensils. We still need, you know, our phones to communicate. You know, that we do need mining, but under capitalism, it's been absolutely exploitative. It's been destructive to the, you know, to the environments that it's, um, that it's exploited. But it's also been absolutely devastating for many mm. Indigenous yeah. cultures. So just something related to Labor um, Party conference in the UK was it was interesting that one of the MPs, John McDonald, who's one of the more radical kind of, Labour UK MPs kind of talked about this whole thing about this whole thing about the question of extractivism and the global south um, because mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes any sort of push for climate change um, by 
by capitalist governments could very much just be we have 100% renewables, but that is like dependent on market forces and depending on through those market forces, it's dependent on the exploitation of the third exactly. world. Exactly. Still, there's still exploitation and we're just doing it more environmentally friendly. Yeah. So that's why I think, you know, things like public ownership, um, questions of climate justice are all very important things to have at the heart of every climate movement. It's not just mm. enough for governments to act. It's actually important um, to actually have people um, guide that process and it's actually centred around the question of, inclu- of having a just outcome for all workers and, also, and communities. And also, you know, kind of abolish this sort of colonialism that we've had, this imperialism where, you know, our, our sort of countries go into uh, poorer countries, extract their minerals and they get no profit, no benefit from it. So we've got to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's now time for Beyond Zero Emissions. Yes. Thanks, um, listeners, um, for tuning in on the public holiday and um, we'll see Stick you... Stick around for Beyond Zero. I'm sure they've got lots to talk about. Yeah, and we'll see you next Friday. See ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand. Easy for a lot of people to agree with, but I mean, for us, that is the sort of 